Good morning, church family. If you will take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, and then we're going to read a few verses and then keep the, the, your Bible open to that place as we're going to look at some of the surrounding context as well. Uh, we are in week three of a four-week series called Why We Gather. Uh, we're reminding ourselves the importance, as it says in Hebrews chapter 10, of the assembling of ourselves, that we are not to forsake that, but there is something important that happens when God's church, when his people gather, and we've been looking at the different aspects of our gatherings together. Week one, we looked at prayer. Last week, we looked at preaching. Uh, this is the week that we look at giving, and next week, singing. Uh, and so as today, we take this journey. Uh, it is Father's Day, so I want to give a shout out to all the dads out there uh, in our our world today. I know the challenge. Yeah, absolutely. You can give him a hand. A sure thing. For all the dads who love Jesus and work hard, I know there are no perfect dads, uh, but uh, it is incredible to call out in our culture today in which it's a difficult time uh, to be a father uh, as masculinity and many other things are under attack in our culture of uh, the importance of dads. Uh, and so speaking of which, I was blessed to have a very good father. Uh, and so he taught me many things. Uh, he taught me how to bait a hook uh, to catch that rainbow trout. He taught me how to throw a curveball. Uh, he taught taught me dad jokes, known around my house as simply jokes, right? So speaking of one, uh, I want to give you my favorite from last year. Can I do that today, right? So did you hear about the Spanish-speaking magician? He stood up in front of the crowd and he said, uno, dos, and then he disappeared without a trace. <laughs> See, you guys like them. Everybody pretends they don't like dad jokes, but you love them secretly. We all know how that works. That's why they're, they're so uh, popular. I saw a great t-shirt that said, dad jokes are how I roll, right? Uh, and so, yes, I know I got some eye rolls there, but that's okay. Uh, and so my dad taught me many things, but one of the things that he taught me was how to handle money. And so when I was about five or six years old, you know, my brothers and I, we began to receive an allowance. I'm gonna show you how much that allowance was because we were handed these two things at the same time. My allowance was a whopping dollar and 25 cents. We would get it every Saturday night, Sunday morning. It also came with a giving envelope. If you've been raised in around church, you will know what these are all about. Matter of fact, there's one, if you need an example, in the, the seat back that's in front of you. And so the implication was clear that we were to put some of this inside of this and bring it with us to church. My dad was intentional in that regard. Now, at five or six years old, right, I had a dollar and I knew, man, that had to pay for all that stuff that was on my budget. I mean, things like baseball cards and Big League Chew and Star Wars action figures, really important priority items, right? So I, I just assumed, right, well, it made sense. So I'll put this in the offering envelope and I'll bring it to church. So I did that for years from the time I was in kindergarten until I got to the fourth grade and they taught us about percentages. And so it occurred to me, I come home from the fourth grade one day and I'm like, dad, now, now wait a minute. I need to have a conversation with you because math majors help us out. If you've got $1.25 and you're giving 25 cents a week, what percentage is that? 20%. Well, what's the tithe? 10%. So I told my dad, dad, I've been giving too much to Jesus all these years. <laughs> like I'm going to look for a little interest in return, right? There's a comic book I've been saving up for. And so, I, and then I realized, I said, I also have a dilemma because I, I can't take this quarter you give me and saw it in half and put half of it in the offering plate every week. And my dad said, well, I, I can solve that for you. 
Like one week you could give 13 cents and the next week you could get 12. And I was like, there's the answer I'm looking for. And then my dad said some words and well, I can't remember exactly the way he put it, but it left an impression on me. He said something to this effect. He said, but son, I want you to think about this. It all belongs to God, right? Like, yeah, sure. I was a Sunday school kid. You know, I knew the right answer. It was God. It all belongs to him. He said, well, let me, let me talk in your currency. Let's say God gave you five baseball cards. And then he said, hey, you can keep four of those free of charge. They're yours. But one of those, I wouldn't mind having back, not because I need it, but because I want to bless our church and our pastor and our community and our world and the needs that are out there through it. He's like, do you think that's too much to ask for in return? And I thought about it a minute and I went and counted out 13 pennies and I put 13 pennies in my offering envelope for that next Sunday. But when the offering plate came by, I put that 13 cents in the offering plate. But even then at 10, 11 years old, I didn't like the way it made me feel. I felt cheap. It occurred to me that if God had done everything for me, right, if it all belonged to him, well, right, for me to literally count out pennies and give to him down to the penny, right, I, I, I was holding back. You see, I learned, my dad just in a very gracious way taught me a very important lesson that giving is not merely about the percentage that we give, but it's about the heart that we give with. You see, that's what Paul wanted the church at Corinth to understand. It's what the Holy Spirit wants us to know today, that we give because when we give, it reflects the Christ who gave it all for us. So if you will stand in honor of God's word with me as we read from 2 Corinthians chapter eight, we're gonna read verses three through five and then keep your Bibles open as I mentioned. Paul writes about the church at Macedonia. I can testify that according to their ability, and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Pray with me this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you want to be Lord over every aspect of our lives. As your disciples, there's no part of our life that shouldn't be impacted by the gospel. And so God, when it comes to our financial resources, that's an area in which many of us need to take a step because for far too long, we've disconnected our relationship with you from the generosity that takes place in our lives. So God, on this day, would you challenge us? Would you humble us? Would you open our ears, our hearts, our life, and our practices to you in this place? Because we need to learn to be generous people because you are a generous and faithful God. And it's in your son's name we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated this morning. As a church, we should always find the letters to the church at Corinth encouraging to us. It's a church that struggled, a church that had its challenges. As the theologians have said, Paul planted a church in Acts chapter 18 in Corinth, and he spent the rest of his ministry trying to get Corinth out of the church. 
because it was a church that was easily influenced by the culture around them. And sometimes the church started to look more like the culture than they did the church of Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes a letter, 1 Corinthians, to call them out on those practices, to confront them. Predictably, there was a bit of a backlash. And so the church at Corinth, many of them did not like that very much. So there was a disruption in the relationship between them and Paul. And so Paul dispatches one of his protégés, Titus, to go to the church there. And after some time, Titus comes back with an encouraging report. Indeed, some of the people have repented. They, they've returned and, and they're listening to your teaching. And so there was still a minority that was holding out. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul defends himself against that minority. But much of this letter to 2 Corinthians is to encourage them to keep on, is to press in. And one of the areas that he was pressing in on them about was this area of giving. In 1 Corinthians 16, he called them to take up a collection. But of course, the disruption and fellowship mean that pause. Now Paul... And 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 encourages them to take up that collection again. And we have in these two chapters the longest extended teaching on giving in the entire New Testament. And so it's a great place for us to lean in. Why do we pass the plates at church? Why do we collect an offering? Why is giving important to discipleship? There's no better place than here to look. And so we begin with this, three principles today. Number one is this, generosity is more about where we give from than what we give to. Generosity is about where we give from. It is about the heart more than what we give to, not the things that we give to and not that they are unimportant. But we have to be careful because we live in a day and an age in which cause giving is what everybody wants to do. And if we're not careful about that, there are just and worthy causes we're going to see. Paul is pointing out an opportunity that is a just and worthy cause today. But if we're not careful, we begin to make giving all about us. And we're evaluating every video we see and every plea for giving and every giving letter that comes in the mail by our standards rather than recognizing that we are to give as God's people to the work of the church, no strings attached. There are opportunities to give, but it's not about us. It remains about the Lord and his work. And so what is the opportunity that's here? Well, the opportunity is to give to the mother church in Jerusalem. I have to remember that Israel during this time was very much under the thumb of Roman oppression. The Romans had had it with the Jewish people. We're just a few years away from the Romans wiping out Jerusalem completely. And so in these moments, the church in Jerusalem in particular is under attack from both sides. They're under the thumb of Roman impression. And at the same time, they're being persecuted by the Jewish people from which they came. And so Paul had a heart for what he called the, the mother church in Jerusalem. Knowing that they were suffering, he employed the, the more wealthy churches of Asia Minor and what's now modern day Greece to collect an offering to take back to them, to encourage them, to remind them that the gospel started there and spread, to remind them that they were not forgotten by their brothers and sisters in other parts of the Roman Empire. And so there was certainly a worthy cause to give to. But what's remarkable is who gave the money. I see this often as a pastor. It's not often the people you expect to give who step up to give. Instead, sometimes it comes from a surprising source. Look with me at verse one of chapter eight. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. So it's kind of northern, uh, northeastern Greece. He said, during a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
That is a remarkable verse. Let's stop for a minute before we just fly past it. They are undergoing their own severe trial. We're not told what that trial was. Most likely it was some form of persecution. It was not easy to be a convert to Christianity in the first century. And so under their own trial, brought about by affliction, a word that means stress or pressures, what happened, their abundant joy. This is remarkable. Under their own stress and their own moment of trial, what came out of them when they were squeezed was not woe is me. Instead, it was abundant joy. Translation, the churches of Macedonia had learned that joy cannot be contingent on our circumstances. Instead, their joy was in the Lord. Their joy was in God's relationship with them and what Jesus had done in their heart. And so their joy combined with their extreme poverty in the original language, that literally means they were scraping the bottom of the barrel. They were at the lowest of low. The moment in your life when you had the least amount of money in your checking account, that's the moment that the churches of Macedonia were in right now. But those two things, oddly enough, that should not work together, combine. Despite the fact they were at their lowest of low, their hearts were full. And so what happened? It overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That is absolutely remarkable. It was delight for them over duty. And you almost get the impression that Paul, he was trying to keep them from giving. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. It's almost like Paul's like, guys, I know it's a tough time. Like we're collecting some money for our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, but hey, just, you know, kind of do what you can. Don't expect you to do a lot. And they're like, no, no, we want to give. And Paul's like, is it the best time for you to give? And they're like, no, no, do, do not deny us this opportunity to show the love of Christ in our hearts for our brothers and sisters. What a remarkable story. And as a pastor, to have people beg to give, that is remarkable. Most of our attitudes are like that of a, a church I was once told about. I have an African-American pastor friend who told me a story that made the circles in his, his churches. And he talked about the fact that this African-American preacher was preaching out of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. It's a passage that says, those who put their trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And our black churches are more demonstrative generally. And so there was a deacon in particular who liked to sit on the front row and he was really, really demonstrative. And so as the pastor, you know, began to unpack that passage a little bit with his congregation and the, that tradition of preaching, he said, so I've been talking to the Lord church and the Lord wants this church to walk in Christ likeness. And that deacon hopped up and said, amen, brother, let her walk, let the church walk. And then he said, I've been talking to the Lord, the preacher did. And he said, the Lord wants us to run, to pursue Christ's likeness. And that deacon jumped up again and said, hallelujah, let the church run. And then the pastor, you know, just getting excited, said, and the, the Lord wants this church to not just walk, doesn't want this church to just run. He wants this church to fly. And that deacon jumped up and said, amen, hallelujah, let her fly. And the preacher said, now it's going to take money for this church to fly. And that deacon said, let her walk, let her walk. And that little story summarizes most of our attitude in the church when it comes to giving. We're all in for the mission. We want to see people reached. We want to see kids disciples. We want to see communities changed. We want to see needs met across the world. But when it comes time to do our part, we're tempted to step back. 
And what the apostle Paul is doing is he is telling the more wealthy church in Corinth, look at your brothers and sisters in Macedonia. During this opportunity, they are stepping up. They don't have it to give. And yet they are giving anyway. And God uses that heart, a heart that's not merely just giving to a cause, but that's giving out of obedience, out of an understanding of the the riches of the grace of the Lord Jesus. So as I tell you often, you don't have to tell me what you believe. Show me where you spend your time and your money, and I'll tell you what you believe. Paul was saying, This church in Macedonia, I don't have to guess what they believe, where their confidence is. It is in the Lord because they are giving even when it doesn't make sense to give. One theologian I was reading this week said this, there is no way to grow to maturity without committing your finances to the Lord. Jesus can have our money and not have our hearts, right? We can go through the motions, we can write the check, we can give, but we can do it from a place of compulsion. We can do it from an attitude that is not Christ-like. We can do it out of religiosity because I'm, I'm expected to or because I'm gonna prove myself to God. Jesus can have our money and not have our hearts, but he cannot have our hearts without our money. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount said, no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. You're gonna love one and despise the other or vice versa. You see, Jesus was more honest with us than we want to be with ourselves. And so it's a reminder that who we are as disciples of Jesus is holistic. The gospel is for the whole person and that includes our financial resources as well. And so I love what Paul says in verse seven. He commends, he encourages the church at Corinth. As you excel in everything, this church was gifted, it was talented, it was faithful, right? In faith and speech and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. He calls giving an act of grace. And here's the reason why our second principle this morning is this, generosity is a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. In verse eight, he says, I'm not saying this is a command. It's pretty remarkable. Paul wasn't afraid to issue an imperative or two along the way, but he says, I'm not saying this is a command, rather by means, rather by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness, the authenticity of your love. So Paul says it's a test. It's one of those ways that we reveal what we we truly believe. Pastor John Piper gives a helpful illustration to us. He says this, when we release the 10th of our income and give it over to the ministry and mission of Christ in the world, we honor the creator rights of God who owns everything. Psalm 24, one, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So that's absolutely true. It's why our main way of talking about money year in and year out is to not merely focus on tithing, but to focus on lifestyle. What you do with every cent says something about your view of God and what he means to you. But God is wise and knows us deeply. He knows there is something deeply wrong with the husband who answers his wife's complaint that he doesn't give her any time by saying, what do you mean? Don't I give you my time? I mean, all my time is yours. I work all day long for you and the children. He said that has a hollow ring to it if he doesn't give her any exclusive time. Giving her some evenings together and some dates does not deny that all his time is for her. It proves it. 
This is why God declares one day in seven, especially his. They are all his and making one day special proves it. This is the way it is with our money and God. Giving God a 10th of our income does not deny that all of our money belongs to God. It proves that we believe it. Tithing is like a constant offering of the first fruits of the whole thing. The 10th is yours, O Lord, in a special way because all of it is yours in an ordinary way. Can vouch for this. My wife's love language is quality time. I can do all the chores. <laughs> I can be sure the budget's balanced. I can do all of those things. And she appreciates that. But if we don't have a date night, if we don't go for a walk where we talk and connect, our relationship is not the same. In the same way, that's what God's saying, right? Everything that you have belongs to me. But I ask you to set this apart for me and for you. God doesn't need it. Let's be clear about that. All the resources are his. The Old Testament tells us he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. One of my deacons in Alabama used to say, and if he needs to, he'll just sell one of them. He owns them all. He doesn't need our resources, but God knows it is a great grace to us and to others as we relinquish the stranglehold we have on our bank account, the stranglehold that we have on stuff as we squeeze the life out of life and instead live surrendered. It's connected to the gospel itself. And that's why this verse is so important. Highlighted, underlined circle, verse nine with me. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. And there is what it all comes back to. It's grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. But think about it for a moment. Jesus, God himself, stepped out of heaven, came to earth, the incarnate God, humbled himself, taking on the, the likeness of a man, it says in Philippians chapter two. And not only did he do that, but he became obedient even to death on a cross. Why? So that you and I could be reconciled to him so that our sins would be forgiven. And as if that was not enough, that you and I could be restored to God in that judicial sense of being declared righteous with him, God went a step further and he adopted us into his family as sons and daughters of the most high king. So that when you are reconciled to God, you are welcomed in the family and you become an heir to all of his kingdom, all of his riches are lavished on us as followers of Jesus Christ. That's a good God, amen? And that's why generosity is a gospel issue because God is a giver. He gives with no strings attached. And he knows every time that we do as well, we become more like him. We resist the idol of money. We resist the idol of stuff. And we're able to put our heart in the right place with him securely on the throne. It's important to remember that when we stand to sing the famous hymn, we do not stand and sing, I surrender some. We don't stand and sing, I surrender X percentage. We don't stand and surrender, Jesus, I surrender the little bit that I had extra this week, right? We sing, I surrender what, church? All, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. The Bible calls us to give. It isn't socialism. 
It's out of a heart that's been transformed by Christ and we give freely and abundantly. We give because he first gave to us. That's why generosity is a gospel issue. Number three, principle number three is generosity is a means of God's grace to bless others as it blesses us as a giver. Look at the practical instruction Paul gives beginning in verse 10. And in this matter, I am giving advice because it is profitable for you. See, Paul knew dad jokes as well. Began last year, not only to do something, but to want to do it. So he appeals to them, right? Follow through. Verse 11, finish the task so that just as there was an eager desire, they may be a completion according to what you have. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. It is not that there should be relief for others and hardship for you, but it is a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need so that their abundance may in turn meet your need in order that there may be equality. And here we get the important biblical principle of not right equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. We don't all make the same amount of money. We don't all have access to the same amount of resources. But the key, what Paul is saying is, is that for most of us, there is a surplus and out of that surplus, we should give because right now is the moment when your brother and sister needs it. There may come a time in which you are in need and your brothers and sisters then will provide for your need. Now let's be abundantly clear here that Paul is not preaching the prosperity gospel. We do not give so that we can get. Instead, out of overflowing hearts, we give in obedience to Jesus because he knows where the needs are. And if you look at our culture and our community in particular, I know it's tempting living in this area to say, well, there's subdivisions with houses that are bigger than mine. Man, there's people who drive cars that are fancier than mine. Matter of fact, just go up a couple of exits on I-65. Look at some of those houses, right? We're not wealthy. Those people are wealthy. Let me give you a reminder. The church is global. Let's see the church through God's eyes. Do you know that if you make $10,000 a year in the United States, you are wealthier than 84% of the people living on this planet? Do you know if you make $50,000, your household does, you are in the top 1%. There's a world with urgent, physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. And we get in our bubble and we forget that God has richly and abundantly blessed us. As a matter of fact, when you think about what happens outside of our own communities, I want you to to think about this. The average Christian in North America right now gives 2.5% of their income to the local church. So we're not even touching a tithe. We're not even touching 10% as the church in North America. Out of that, only 2% goes overseas. Now I wanna remind you, there are 500 million people today at risk of starvation. There are 150 million orphans in the world. There are billions of people without access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, out of the little bit that we give, only 2% goes overseas. Let me translate that. For every $100 that is given, a nickel, five cents, goes to meet those urgent physical and spiritual and emotional needs. And so we have abundance and we are called to give out of that abundance. I believe that if God raises our 
standard of living. It's not merely so we can compete with the Joneses. It's not merely so we can keep up with all of our neighbors. Instead, I believe that God often raises our standard of living so that we can raise our standard of giving to those who are in need. And every cent that we spend says something about what we believe. So we submit that to the Lord as we do with all things in our hearts and in our lives. So generosity is a means by which God uses us to bless others, not because he needs us, but because he knows that we need to be generous. And so I love when it comes to practical application, because you don't have to go far in this passage to find it. Go with me to chapter nine of second Corinthians verse six. The point is this, Paul says, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. The principle from agriculture is a pretty simple one if you stop to think about it. If you've got a farmer and he's got a huge field, if he just takes one seed at a time and he plants it, I had a grandfather who's a farmer, right? And you took one seed and you plant it, one seed and you plant it, you'll get a yield, but it won't be very big. But what about the farmer who takes seeds and he puts them in his bag, right? And he goes out there, he's, he's plowed the field and he spreads those seeds. He throws them left and right. Of course, in our day, we have uh, tractors that are able to, to spread those seeds far and wide. Well, ultimately you're gonna get a bigger yield. Why? Because there's more seed that is being sown. So again, do not read prosperity gospel into this verse. Don't try to pluck it out of its context in these chapters and say, well, that means, right, if I give more, right, I'm I'm going to have a financial windfall come my way. You may or may not. That's up to God, the God who's sovereign over all things. But know this, if you sow generously, that God will see it and he will use it to bring about kingdom fruit. That's what this passage is teaching us. So be generous, sow generously. Not only that, we are to number two, give cheerfully. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. God wants our hearts to be full of joy as we give, to recognize his grace that has come to us. And now that grace that can flow through us to other people, it should be fun to give. And there should be great stories about what happens. As a matter of fact, that word cheerful in the Greek language is the word hilarion, where we get the English word hilarious. Now in the first century, it meant focused. But now that word has taken on that meaning to us. And it works pretty well if you think about it, because even the grace of God to send his one and only son to us and we didn't deserve it is pretty hilarious when you think about it. In other words, it doesn't make rational sense. God chose to do it out of the abundance of his grace and his love. And we, we give in the same way. God does some pretty remarkable things. Let me tell you one of my favorite giving stories. This summer, we will celebrate 20 years of the student ministries of our campuses coming de together to go to inner city Chicago, where we have helped birth a church in one of Chicago's toughest neighborhoods called Garfield Park. The church is called Reborn Community Church. They're one of our Hope for the World mission partners. The pastor there is Jamie Thompson. He's a friend of mine. God connected us 20 years ago when he was being raised in inner city church, felt called to be a pastor. But there are, as you know, hundreds and thousands of pastors who have left the inner cities because it's so hard and gone other places to start churches. He felt very called to Chicago 
to the neighborhoods that lead the city in crime and in murders and in drug dealing. But he knew that the Lord wanted him to plant a church there. So we, for 20 years, have gone up in the summer to help him with vacation Bible schools, to help our students to see what it looks like in neighborhoods that are different than theirs. And so over the years, we've watched this go from a dream to a church plant in Jamie's house and in his garage, right? And to now they have their own facility, a renovated Chicago firehouse. It's been an amazing journey, but there was an important step along the way. And so one summer, there was a young man who had gone up with us And unknown to me, between that summer and the next summer when he went back, he decided he wanted to save some money to contribute to this church plant. And so he worked a part-time job at Blockbuster Video. If you're under 30 years old, let me explain what Blockbuster Video is, okay? It was a place where you had to go physically rent DVDs and bring them home. He made like $8.25 an hour, but after paying for his his car and his his Chick-fil-A and whatever else was on his budget, he saved up a little bit of money in an envelope. And that next summer, as we were there, again, unknown to me, one day he just walks up and he says, uh, hey, Pastor Jay, uh, w- would you give this money to Jamie? God just told me last year I should save up some money for him. And so, uh, man, I've just been so encouraged by his faith. And man, I just, I know he needs it and this church needs it and the community needs it more than I need it. So would you give it to him? And I was like, no, I, I want you to give it to him. And so I called Jamie over. Jamie was on his cell phone. After a couple moments, Jamie got off the, the call And I could tell he was a little emotional. And I said, well, hey, Jamie, this is one of our students. He felt led of the Lord to save some money to give to you. So he handed in the envelope. Jamie began to count the money in it. And Jamie began, he's a great big guy, bigger than me, began to kind of laugh, cry, right? I was like, what what is happening right now? He was getting super emotional. And I thought, well, man, that's that's great. I mean, he's just so grateful for what happened. He said, no, no, no. He goes, you don't understand. As you know, we've been meeting in my house. We outgrew my house. We moved to my my garage. We've had our garage broken into, our church equipment stolen. We have been trying for years to get into the elementary school that's in this neighborhood. And man, the Chicago public school system has, has stopped us, put up all the barriers. They just called me a few moments ago to say, beginning this Sunday, we could use that school. But we didn't have the money to pay the security deposit. Do you know how much money was in that envelope? $350. Do you know how much money the security deposit was? $350. Jamie laughed. We laughed. We cried. Why? Because that's our God. Many of us won't ever see until we get to heaven, right? How God used the resources that we contributed to bless, to encourage, right? To grow the gospel. But someday we'll see it. We'll see those connections. He gives us glimpses in this life to encourage us, to give cheerfully, to participate in what he's doing. Why? Because that's when life gets fun. To say, God, I could have used this to buy more stuff. I could have used this X, Y, Z. But man, God, to watch you use it to advance the gospel in your kingdom, that brings me joy. And the reason, the reason that we know God is faithful is because point number three, our third practice is we can trust God's sufficiency. We can know that God has the big picture. He knows what we need. He knows what his church needs. He knows what his mission needs as well. Look with me at what it says beginning in verse eight. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Again, it all comes from God. He enables that to flow from us to others. As it is written, he distributed freely. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. 
Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Let me emphasize that last phrase. What does that mean? Again, sometimes we assume, well, if we give, right, then God's gonna bless us financially, maybe. If we give, right, then we're gonna have these great stories, maybe. Here's what it will increase, the harvest of your righteousness. What does that mean? Your life is going to bear fruit that looks like Jesus. That's what that means. That's why giving is a part of our journey as disciples, because giving helps us to look more like Jesus. So will you bow your heads as we come to this time of response? We have naturally kept our giving moment for this moment because every Sunday when the plates come by, we want to remind you that our giving moment is rooted in what we just taught you today. It's not merely about tossing some change in the offering plate. It's not merely about, well, this is just what we do because it's tradition. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ as much as the preaching, as much as the singing. Paul helps us to understand God is a God who gave his very best for us. And so now you and I have the opportunity to respond to him as we give. And I know we often text to give or we give online. Many of us do that. So why do we still have this moment in our service? Because it's important for us to pause, to remember the grace of giving, that we may be challenged to excel in it as a church, to be a generous and a loving people so that we can be reminded that the God who has always been faithful to us, well, that we have the opportunity to be faithful in response to him. And I know that this is a moment of growth for many of us. Our numbers show that 50% of people who attend our campuses across all nine campuses don't give anything. So for you, maybe today, the first step on your giving journey is to give something. No, if you don't, you're still welcome here in every way. And we're glad that you're here. But know that there are things you only learn in obedience. And so maybe today is the day that you need to begin giving. Relinquishing the stranglehold you have of the stuff in this world and trusting God. Maybe for some of you, you give occasionally, but you need to give consistently. We're not legalistic around here about the tithe, but the tithe is a good place to start. It's a biblical number that has biblical precedent to begin with 10%, but to not stop there. That's not a cap. As Paul says, we give as God and the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts to give, as we've determined in our heart to give. There's some of you who give consistently of a tithe or more. Maybe for you, it's time to give an offering. It's to give above and beyond, recognizing that in your moment of surplus, there is need in the kingdom. However it is that you feel led to give, whatever step that you need to take, we want to encourage you to take it today. Myself, our team, will be up by the Next Steps banners in a little bit to talk and pray with you if this is an area of growth for you. It certainly is a continual challenge for all of us, a daily opportunity to be obedient to Jesus. We're gonna sing the song in just a moment as we pass the plates available. As Mary leads us, I want you to miss these words. For the one who gave me life, nothing is a sacrifice. The cross, the gospel puts it all in perspective. Pray with me this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the grace of giving. We thank you for a heavenly father who is a good father, who has always been faithful to us to provide for our needs and for almost all of us in this room so much more. So now, Father, 
in this moment, it is a reminder to us that you have called us to excel in this area of our disciple journey, just like every other area, faith and wisdom and knowledge. God, we're called to be generous, not so we can earn our way into right standing with you, not so that we can get something in return, but because you first loved us, you first gave to us your son, Jesus. So God, as we continue to worship through our tithes and offerings, find us faithful as you were always faithful to us. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.